Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is Bookin', brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Adam Levin. He is the author of the instructions in the short story collection, Hot Pink, both of which were published by McSweeney's. His new novel is called Bubblegum, which was published by our friends at Doubleday. Adam, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And um, Adam, it is the year 2010. I'm managing a border store in San Francisco's Union Square, and we get this wonderful novel, The Instructions, a novel that is beautiful both in its content and as a physical object. Uh, a physical object that I must mention is roughly the same width as my face. Um, <laughs> now we have this new novel, Bubblegum, which is just as wonderful, if not more so. The book, as an object, actually smells like bubblegum. And um, first, Adam, why the jump from McSweeney's to Doubleday? Um, well, I... I you know, it's, it's hard to pin down exactly, but, but I think mostly my editor at McSweeney's is no longer the editor at McSweeney's, and um, I, I loved working with him. He's not an editor anywhere anymore. He writes for television now. He's actually a showrunner. And um, basically, I we submitted the book to some places, and uh, Rob Bloom at Doubleday, uh, I, first conversation I had with him, I thought he really got the book, and... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I was, so so I went I went with him. I, I go with editors more than with the, the imprint, I guess. Um, and uh, like Double Day's great, you know. All all imprints have great stuff, I guess. But uh, but I really like Rob, so um, that's why Double Day. Uh, yeah, right on. And in reference to the book as an object, uh, the instructions, as I mentioned, is a beautiful physical book. And Bubblegum yeah. um, has that bright pink cover that smells like bubblegum. Uh, did you have input on the design decisions for your books? And if so, uh, what was the thought process behind the design of these two novels? Well, I, I had some input. So, mm-hmm. so with um, with the instructions that was like a sort of longer kind of process like so McSweeney's I mean as you know like it's pretty much only puts out beautiful books or at least they used to mm-hmm. and especially in that period it was just these gorgeous objects the quarterly is gorgeous and um, so at that time my editor had he picked a couple artists that he liked um, Rachel Sumter and um, Jacob McGraw Mickelson or Mickelson McGraw I always screw up his last name it's a dashed last name mm-hmm. um I think it's Jason McGraw-Mickelson. And um, they, they're a couple, and they work together. And uh, he had them read the book, and they threw a bunch of ideas forward. And he showed me all of them, and I was sort of, like, flummoxed because they were all kind of great. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he was not I think, fully satisfied. This is, like, a really long version. And so he said, you know, try one more. And then they came up with a sort of rough draft of what became the instructions cover, and it was so clearly the best one and then they they just did that and yeah so so i was sort of like he would show me stuff and i would say yes or no uh you know or i like this one better or worse um but but ultimately it was it was the editor and then with bubblegum um and 
I should say too, I guess there were a couple things I knew I didn't want a photo, but McSweeney's was never going to do a photo. I, there were, you know, things, limitations. And then with Bubblegum, the main thing was I just asked my editor to not depict these creatures that are in the book. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't want, I wanted the reader to sort of form an image of these creatures that are called uh, curios or bottomals in the book, and I didn't want them depicted on the cover. And, uh, the artist who did that he hit it like he got the cover I guess on the first try like the second they, they he showed it at Double Day they freaked out they sent it to me I freaked out and that was it that was and then my editor said and we can make it smell like bubblegum which is not you know no one I, I would never have had such an idea it was kind of cool like that so yeah yeah that's the question it sure does thank you so much adam um and now let's talk about bubblegum uh, there are only a couple of writers i have ever read where i feel like i can hear their minds spinning at a thousand miles an hour as i'm reading them and, and you were one of them adam um the idea behind bubblegum the product and i'm both paraphrasing and pulling this from memory from one of the passages in your novel is that it is a product that has a sort of burst of flavor on the front side but then the thing that becomes attractive about the product um, ultimately is that it can be chewed on for a very, very long time. And this yeah. is sort of what your novel's protagonist, Belt Magnet, does with every single thought that runs through his mind. He chews on it perpetually and sort of spins it in every possible way. Adam, your mind must work this way, at least to some degree, or I can't imagine that you could imagine it for Belt. Uh, can you tell us what your approach was to Belt Magnet's mentality and what it was like inhabiting him as he wrote this novel, Bubblegum? So I approached it slowly, and I went sentence by sentence. That, that, that's 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 basically. I have a I have a guy who in Belt. I have a there's a protagonist who is um, who is very different in, in in a sort of feature way from other folks in that. Uh, he has conversations with inanimate objects occasionally and otherwise he's a pretty intelligent fellow he's a novelist um, and he has to figure out every time he's walking through the world uh, every every interaction he has in the world how to kind of make sense of it being somebody who sometimes thinks that inanimate objects uh, have feelings and thoughts um, I think that's maybe a does that, does, that, does that answer the question? Yeah, it sure does. Thank you so much, Adam. Sure. Um, one of the first characters introduced in Bubblegum is Johnny, John Boat, Pelmore Jason, who we'll just call John Boat. Uh, the novel opens with the young belt magnet shouting, Shut your pie hole cake face at a friend after a tetherball victory on the playground in John Boat who is the new kid in town in this moment, overhears this phrase. He then steals it and capitalizes on it by printing and selling t-shirts. This type of thing happens more than once. What is the dynamic between Belt Magnet and John Boat, and how does this dynamic influence Belt Magnet's character? Well, I think, you know, the dynamic, like, from the time, at that point, and probably, you know, conceivably throughout the rest of Belt's life, at least in the novel, or most of the rest of it, is one between this very um, wealthy, privileged kid, um, John Boat, like sort of obscenely wealthy, not just like the sort of rich kid, but the, this sort of uh, billionaire type kid, um, 
and who's who's also you know very handsome and athletic and you know all the things that a you know 12 year old boy kind of wants to be that would be john boat and then you have belt who's this lonely kid who um loses his mother uh pretty early uh in life and it has some has some uh things that make him very different from others namely that you know he uh he, he talks to inanimate objects and, and he doesn't have any friends John Boat has not just friends but you know maybe John Boat doesn't have any real friends either but everybody loves John Boat um, Belt is this sort of weirdo um, and John Boat is kind to him but he's sort of he's kind to him in a way that I guess um, isn't it doesn't it doesn't he, he's not sacrificing a lot to be kind to Belt um, it's very easy for him um, and so and he feels entitled to kind of just about anything which is sort of demonstrated by by the by what you just described which is he hears a he hears something that another kid says and he decides to make a t-shirt out of it and it's a t-shirt that you know has his own name on it John Bo's own name on it um, as if it were his saying um, and doesn't really doesn't realize there there's really anything really wrong with that um, or questionable about that until he gets called on it at which point he acts pretty kindly actually um, but but again in a sort of way that doesn't take a lot of sacrifice it's a sort of uh, um, the way uh, you know a sort of friendly billionaire might act which is to say well hey let me buy you a bunch of clothes I didn't realize I offended you and, and you you know his solution is to go to the mall and buy belt clothing and help him get girls right thank you so much Adam and spinning off of this question a little bit uh, one of the most interesting relationships uh, in bubblegum is that between Belt Magnet and his father Clyde Uh, Clyde is proud of his son when he sees the t-shirts that John Boat has printed with a derivation of the Magnet family phrase shut your pie hole cake face on them Uh, there are a lot of novels with father-son relationships in them but this father-son relationship between Clyde and Belt is pretty unique um for example Clyde visits a brothel down the street from their house often trying to take Belt with him and likes to have late night heart-to-hearts upon his return home uh can you tell us about this relationship and if there was any inspiration behind it um I'm never good at locating uh excuse me inspiration other than um I think like I generally I try to make I generally start out with something that I think is kind of funny or strange, something that that, that I haven't seen before usually, um, and then try to make sense of it, try to make it human. And so, I, I mean, I guess, like, I, so I don't really know what the inspiration is, but it's for the, the nature of the relationship. I think it's mostly, like, you have these, these two people, you know, a father and son who at one point are a man and a boy and then a man and another man. And um, the father, the, the the older one, is uh, they're, they're they're very different from each other. And and the the father is like very much loves his son, um, and is trying to and it, and has this sort of like hyper masculine thing. He's sort of like old school dad. Um, and then he has this his son is this kind of weirdo artist kid. And uh, the father is, I think, sort of consistently trying to reach out to and joke with and protect the son the way fathers and sons 
you know often do in healthy relationships uh, uh loving relationships and um and it kind of fails miserably uh not even miserably is too strong but it fails fairly often um and it's all complicated uh it's not just that their sort of natures are different it's not just that one is weirdo artist the other wants to go you know sleep with women and uh or sleep with prostitutes and, and sort of be a tough guy it's it's also that they, they both really loved this same woman which is to say belt's mother and she died really suddenly um when belt's young and when the father's pretty young when the father is younger than um belt is uh by the time belt is relaying the story um and so so you have two very different people trying to relate and trying to figure out how to um how to be good to each other i think uh and they share a loss and that's almost in a way all that they share of any great substance um and at the same time, you also have this the, the sort of living situation, which is that Belt is in his 30s. He's an adult man, and um, and he lives with his father. He's never moved out, uh, which again, not a very like old school type dude thing to do, at least not in the United States, <clears throat> really anywhere. Um, and so, so that, that's it's it's the relationship is weirded by all of these things. All right, thank you so much, Adam. Listeners, we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Adam Levin. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Coil Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story. One that supports community. Listeners of Bookin' can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin', B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Adam Levin, the author of Bubblegum, published by our friends at Doubleday. Adam, I want to talk about the bank where Belt Magnet first goes to attempt to cash a check made out to his father uh, when his father leaves town without giving him any cash for cigarettes or food. Uh, Everyone in this bank has a side hustle. Uh, One of the bank employees sells custom handkerchiefs and has one of my favorite couplets in the novel, which is, a hanky wasn't optional, a hanky was pants. Um, And another bank employee plans VIP after party. Uh, why is it necessary for all of these bankers to have a side hustle? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's necessary so much as I, I found myself, you know, doing it the first time with the with the, with the VIP party hosting fellow, um, and he he's he, he's who he is for any number of reasons. And then I and then I and then it occurred to me, you know, it's like the idea of people that have to have a side hustle who work at a bank is for you know for any number of reasons just sort of inherently comical and and i think i liked you know um felt part of part of belt's character and he, he goes on about this a little in the novel is that is that people tend to monologue at him 
Um, he's there's something about him that invites people to just sort of riff at him. And uh, so the second time when he returns to the bank and he talks to the handkerchief dude, um, it uh, it just seemed. I, I started thinking, well, this seems like uh, this seems like a sort of motif of the bank now. Is 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 like yeah, the people who work at the bank. Uh, they're, they're, they're at this place that is storing money and uh, they still need to have a second job and there, there seems to be just something comically wrong about that um, and so so I think that's that's probably why right thank you Adam and uh, speaking of cigarettes your protagonist belt magnet smokes a lot of them um, yes. outside of this novel I think about 80 per day and when he references other people he knows who smoke that much uh, he mentions Adam Levin author of the instructions um, why write yourself so explicitly into this novel um, I don't know well first of all because it's true I mean it's not true anymore I don't smoke that much mm. but um it was true for a number of years. And, and I think like, you know, I think Belt says he smokes, you know, between 50 and 80 cigarettes a day. I think most people, to most people, that's that's not even a real thing. That's like, that is like, there's only like two people that ever did that. And I think there's there's more than that. And like, you know, I, I mean, it was basically me, Keith Richards, and the fellow who wrote the Easy Way to Stop Smoking book. And I'm sure, I'm sure any number of other people. But I think so part of it was like an authority thing mm-hmm. where it was like, it, it sounds like smoking that many cigarettes um, maybe sounds a bit slapsticky or something, but it's actually like uh, it was it was real and it's and it's it's a plot motivator in the book, you know, to a great degree. How much Bell smokes, mm-hmm. and um, so I felt like dropping my name in there at that point uh, would do something. And also, you know, I just thought you know, there's also the the why not factor. Um, I, I, I think uh, you know. There's uh, some people are sort of allergic to authors um, having their names in, in their own novels for some reason, which I've never I've never quite understood what what what, what the nervousness was about or what the dislike was. Um, it, like it, it seems like uh, there's some. I think I think it comes from a worry that, uh, or, or or a claim that the uh, suspension of disbelief gets violated if the novelist mentions their name but but I always I feel like suspension of disbelief doesn't quite work the way people claim it does I mean when you're holding a, when you're holding a book and the writer's name is at the top and basically it's a book I don't I don't think you're in most cases forgetting that you're reading a book at least for me my favorite books I don't do that um, I know I'm reading a book um, and yeah and it also, a sort of long way around the board. Also, say, I mean, I think that doing that, like I said, I go really slow when I write, and I write really sense to sense. So I think doing that really ended up affecting how the book worked out later in a lot of ways. Um, it it sort of framed the book a bit, uh, or pronounced its frame for me. So the book is, you know, this this it's written as a memoir of belts, and so the question is, you know. Um, and, and the world is a bit different than ours. And the question is, is this supposed to feel like um, our world, or is it supposed to feel like a completely separate thing? And is it, I think there's there's some kind of there's there's a bit of crossover. There's like a Venn diagram where it's uh, 2013 that we who are outside this novel have all lived, and then the 2013 um, that exists in Bubblegum, which at the very least. Uh, that timeline began diverging from ours probably around 1986 or something, uh, and so yeah, all of these things sort of uh, come came came out of 
um, me thinking about, I guess, the way my name's included in that one early part, and then, you know, it comes back a bit later, too. Right. Um, thank you, Adam. And now, let's talk about cures or bottomals. Uh, can you first explain to our listeners what a cure is? I sure. Uh, it's it's um it's supposed to be like the the kind of perfect pet, the the, the, the dream pet. Uh, and it's it's a uh, it's a technology. I don't, want, I don't want to sort of give away too much because the book sort of dramatizes this a bit. But but it's uh it's in, in the late 1980s. This uh, corporation uh, develops these um, these little pets, and it's, it's unclear how or where they get them from. Uh, but they start selling these these little tiny pets that are kind of ideal in that they don't make a mess. Uh, they go to the bathroom once a day, and it's like a little marble, like a little sphere. You just throw it away. They require hardly any food. They require hardly any water. And the only thing they really need to live uh, is contact with their owner. And in the meantime, they're really, they act like, you know, intelligent on the level of like a little kid or a monkey or a parrot, you know, depending on what your bias is toward intelligence. Uh, but the, but they're, they're, these very, they're these very companionable, kind creatures. And the hook is sort of that the older they get, um, the cuter they get, so they're they're cuter if they're two years old than they are when they first hatch from these little eggs that you that you buy, um, and uh, yeah, and and then and as time goes on, um, there are things these uh, chemicals start being developed by this same corporation uh, that you can add to their diet that changes certain characteristics about them, sort of like. Uh, if you see the sort of pet, the curio is hardware and the, uh, the formula, the, the, the chemicals as software. You can kind of plug the two in together and, uh, and you, you get a pet that acts a little angrier or actually, you know, acts a little goofier or in some cases actually develops different physical characteristics from, uh, from the pet you started out with. Right. That's, that's that's curious. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Adam. And I, I think we'll we'll leave it at that. At the risk of spoiling anything for our listeners. Um, moving on. Belt magnet can hear uh, inanimate objects, as we've uh, alluded to earlier, or inans, and as such, is led to do things like destroy old backyard swing sets. Uh, one such instance of. Uh, swing set playground destruction led to a moment that he belt magnet is still remembered for much later in his life uh, a moment that was kind of a numinous experience for many of the teenagers uh, or kids who witnessed it can you both talk about the idea of having your protagonist here inanimate objects but also can you talk about the episode of uh, destruction I'm alluding to and what it is like when you live in a small town to be remembered forever for something that you did as a young person sure sure I'm going to probably have to ask you to remind me about the uh, second part of the question mm-hmm. All right, I forgot the first part <laughs> yeah. Um, those were good questions. Could you could you ask me one more time? Yeah, I sure can. Just can you talk about um the idea of having your protagonist here inanimate objects? Mm-hmm. Sure. So I think you know. Well, well, the idea is first off that that I think it's it's it it struck me as a thing that would be very hard to pull off in any way that would be interesting to a reader, and so mm-hmm. that made it 
interesting to me to do just like on a uh you know on, on the level of a dork sitting alone in his room typing all day um and thinking uh that dork being me uh but but i think that that in the book one of the one of the uh questions that it, that it gives rise to is whether, you know, for a little while at least, whether or not Belt's actually talking to these inanimate objects or imagining it, right? Um, whether the, that is to say, whether the inanimate objects, what they say is are, is being said by them or if it's Belt thinking that, you know, hallucinating. And I think that there's something about that question in the book that, that goes along with uh, this other question regarding the curios which is whether they are um, robots which is what the corporation that sells them claims they are or whether they're animals or whether they're you know sentient beings mm-hmm. um and so you have a, a guy you know we're in we're, we're in belt's point of view for most of the novel and so his point of view is uh is informed by the by the fact that he hears inanimate objects, uh, his point of view on curios and his feeling on curios is very strongly that they're they're animals, um, which implies a whole different set of uh, ethics uh, that you have to apply to your dealings with curios that others maybe don't feel so much. Um, and so, so that was so that was a large part of it was uh, was that and and you know the other thing being that the the inanimate objects are often frequently very unhappy. Uh, and so, so what they ask of Belt and throughout the book, they, what they ask him to do and what they say to him um, is, you know, is, is, is either you read it as this is Belt, how Belt thinks about the world, or this is the world and how it thinks about Belt in a way. Um, and then I think the, your follow-up question was, what, what is it like for a for a kid to um, to become famous in a small town for having done something like this, like the, the swing set murder at Feather's house was that the question? Yeah, just um, what it's like when you live in a small town to then be remembered um, forever for many many years for something that you did as a small child. Right. Well, well so for Belt, I mean, I'm not sure what it what it's. I, I mean, it, there's nothing like that that happened really in my in my own life, as far as I can recall. I mean, I think most kids feel like they're uh, the center of the world, mm-hmm. um, even the underconfident ones. And so they probably, you know, when you're a kid, you probably think that you're remembered as being the kid who, you know, did X, Y, or Z. Like, you know, I, there was a, there was a there was a girl in fourth grade. I remember we had a horrible teacher. She was so mean, and she wouldn't let. Um, she wouldn't let you go to the bathroom more than once before lunch and once after lunch. And there was a girl who, you know, had an accident in class in like fourth grade, which is really, really old for that to happen, like really old. And I think she was, she was screwed up and haunted by that kind of for a really long time. Um, but beyond that, like, you know, the typical like boy stuff where, you know, you, you lost a fight or you won a fight or, you know, something like that. I think that usually is forgotten by most people. Now with Belt, he happened to do something. He put on this sort of violent display that that people loved, like that was purely was remembered as as with nothing but you know kind of adoration and wonder. Um, but for him, it's very strange because 
what he felt he was doing, which was, in effect, just destroying a swing set with a baseball bat um, in front of hundreds of kids, uh, what he, the reasons he was doing that um, are very different from the reasons that anyone watching it seemed to believe he was doing that. Um, and anyone, and this was a thing that was even written about in newspapers and um, editorialized about. And and Belt's motives were are completely misunderstood by everyone around him. And, and I think that for him, uh, it's it's it presents uh, it's another thing that, that kind of ends up alienating him from everyone because even though they adored this thing that he did and adored kind of they sort of adored him for doing it briefly um no one really understood why he was doing it and he couldn't explain it to them for any number of reasons that again you know don't want to be a spoiler about does does that answer the question yeah it sure does thank you so much adam um finally you teach creative writing and if a student brought to you a raw manuscript that was the first draft of a work like Bubblegum or the instructions, what would you tell them? I think teaching creative writing is, is I, I mean, I haven't, I haven't done it in a few years, but I always loved it. I did it for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I shouldn't say always, you know, you never always love anything. Uh, <laughs> but um, I think that, that, you know, when students, uh, what I, my, my basic approach to working with students is to um, help them kind of uh, do the things they're best at more frequently um, and to and then if there are things that they're not so hot at uh, and they really want to get better at you know you know talk to them about that help them get better at those things but these are these are very like I'm very sort of technical teacher on a sentence level um, I think and, you know we talk about story of course in workshop and things like this but uh, but mostly I think most of the most of the stuff that was useful to me when I was a student, that's what I tend to think is going to be useful to students of mine, um, is to talk to them very concretely and specifically about the sentences they wrote, the order they put them in, what feelings they're evoking in readers, um, or me and in their, their workshop mates, and what they want those sentences to be doing. Uh, so, so I think that's, that's, that's how I think of teaching creative writing. Um, and I think a lot of the talk around the, the pedagogy of creative writing always ends up assuming that you have these political conversations or conversations about what story is supposed to be and all these like sort of literature class type questions which are totally interesting in literature class but I don't, I don't tend to help writers much I don't know but I think I think quite a lot of uh, creative writing teachers that I know have pretty much my approach um, so I don't know the, the other stuff I don't know where the other ideas really come from I mean I'm sure that people have had horrible times in workshops being told that you know they need to have more of the mother or you know what about the unconscious motivation and, you know silly questions like this or not silly questions but questions that are more suited for a literature class than they are for you know a creative writing class which is essentially a studio class um does that, does that make sense yeah it sure does adam and thank you so much i'm sure that you are a fantastic instructor and thank oh, you gosh. for writing this novel i'm still wrestling with it in my mind uh, it, I, I think it might end up in the personal pantheon um for me i enjoyed it immensely listeners yeah thank you i've been speaking with adam levin author of bubblegum published by our friends at doubleday copies of bubblegum can be ordered from quail ridge books at www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping adam thank you so much for joining me thank you jason 
Once again, I would like to thank Adam Levin for joining me. Copies of Bubblegum can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one month of free audiobooks and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Bookin'.